Praise God. Well, I am going to sit this morning. I had a battle with ice this week, and I lost it. And uh, anyways, uh, I'm going to try and sit. I hope that's not too distracting for you. Uh, if it is too distracting, uh, we could always go like they did in biblical times. The teacher used to sit, and everybody else used to stand. I don't know if that's a good model for church growth or not. So, uh, But anyways, uh, so thankful to have... All of us again here, and so thankful again to preach for this passage of Scripture. It's an incredible passage of Scripture when you realize, uh, beyond a shadow of a doubt, how much the Jews really understood, again, about the Old Testament. You know, and how, how much faulty uh, understanding they, they even had of its overall message. You know, because when you, when you look at what happens to you again right here, let's just remind ourselves of why Stephen is on trial if you, if you don't understand why Stephen's on trial, it'll ju- just seem like a, a disjointed rehash of history, and it certainly isn't that. But, but he's on trial because he is accused for speaking against the temple. In other words, the temple's not necessary, God's not found there, whatever it happens to be. And he's also, again, accused of speaking against the law. Those two things. You know, and the first, again, evidence that he brings forth is Abraham. You know, and the Jews looked at Abraham. If anybody was righteous in God's sight, if anybody, again, really earned a righteousness, it was Abraham. You know, and he, and he brings out where Abraham was called. He was called before he went to Haran. Other words, when he happens to be in Ur of Chaldees, Mesopotamia. And it was right there that he happened to be, again, a pagan idolater. You know, and they recognized the, um, uh, the penalty for idolatry. He happened to be, again, uh, death. You know, and this was the man. And they prided themselves in the land, right? They prided themselves in the temple, all of that. But here's the thing. Abraham never owned a plot of land in the promised land. You know, he went in and went out, but never never owned any of it. In fact, the only plot of land that Abraham ever owned was his burial plot. You know, and it's amazing to see because the most significant thing about Abraham, the greatest thing that we can know about Abraham is not Abraham. It's Abraham's God, this God, again, of glorious grace. You know, and the evidence, again, uh, against the uh, Jews that happen to begin right here, that they're the ones who are really, again, going against the Scripture, even going against the temple, becomes stronger and stronger because the second example he gives from history, otherwise we're repeating this history, happens to be uh, Joseph and his brothers. And you can't help but see the parallel in between Jesus and the Sanhedrin and their rejection, again, of, uh, of uh, G- uh, Jesus Christ. And you can't help but, but uh, see that. You know, that they rejected this grace. They rejected this revelation that Joseph again had. You know, and the amazing thing about that story is there is reconciliation. There is forgiveness that happens to be, be there. And there's a message to any and all that happen to be there that there is forgiveness before the cross in simple belief in Jesus You know, and the whole story ends off with Jacob bringing his whole family to Egypt. Joseph dies there. He's brought back to the promised land. But here's the thing. You know, Joseph, his entire adult life, and they would say Joseph was blessed by God. His entire adult life was spent in Egypt. In fact, here's the thing, because so often we look at the slavery, so often we look at the burdens that were placed upon Israel. Egypt was a place, again, a blessing. Egypt was a place where the nation of Israel actually grew. They, they actually blossomed, you know, in all of this. Now, uh, uh, Stephen comes to Moses. And when you look at Moses, it's the longest part, again, of this sermon. And, and it's at this part that the message becomes even more apparent. You know, and the message would, would, would do one of two things. It would soften hearts, 
people would be brought to repentance. They would see their sin. They would see their need of the Lord Jesus Christ. They would see their obstinance. They would see their rebellion. Or it would harden their hearts. You know, and as you look at this life that happens at the beginning of Moses, it, it, it really hardened their hearts. It really infuriated them, especially when he gets to the application of all this. But let me just give you an overview. We're not going to go through verses 17 and 21 because it's basically an introduction. But times have changed. Abraham had given that revelation that the people of God would be 430 years in this land of Egypt. And that time is coming to an end. You know, and during that time, there, there happened to be a pharaoh that arose that did not know Joseph. You know, and the idea, again, of did not know Joseph is that he wasn't unaware of the history. He wasn't unaware of the wisdom of Joseph. He didn't know him personally. He had no personal connection and therefore did not have any personal connection to his people. Here, all he saw was these people all of a sudden growing and growing and growing and growing. And he looked upon them as a great threat. So what he did was subjugate or enslave them. He added burdens to keep the population down. And something else he did, every male uh, baby that was born was, was actually put to death. You know, and you have this whole scenario. And all of a sudden, Moses is born. And Moses providentially is miraculously saved, isn't he? In fact, so, so, so providential, you hear, here he is in that little basket and he's floating down the Nile. And... Pharaoh's daughter uh, uh, sees him, and all of a sudden, he, she brings him into his house. He's adopted. You know, and as you read through that story in Exodus, you cannot help but come to this conclusion. This is the one that's chosen of the Lord. This is God's anointed. Now, here's the question. What are you going to do with God's anointed? What are you going to do with God's mouthpiece? What are you going to do with this one who is the chosen deliverer? I mean, they could see the calendar. They could recognize all of this. And again, this is not ancient history, is it? But this is given for our admonition. It's given for our encouragement, our rebuke that happens to be in our life. And it's basically asking this question. Will we follow Christ? And it's not just asking the question from those who do not claim to know Christ, but even us who happens to be, again, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, because so often we can have a form of godliness, but really not have Christ. Isn't it true? We really not be following the Lord Jesus Christ. When you look at the Jews in um, uh, Stephen's time, they would claim fidelity to Moses, but they did not follow. They had nothing to do with the one that Moses pointed to. And the call that happened to be again in this text is don't be like them. And to realize beyond a shadow of a doubt, if we are like them, there is going to be ramifications in each one of our lives, right? Right? We, we have to realize that. So what I want us to do is really look at this warning this morning, not to go in that direction, to realize there's consequences to each one of our actions. There's consequences of going our own way, walking in our own wisdom, and truly not following the Lord. And I want to see this again through three different time periods, again, of Moses. And the first one I want us to see is the first rejection of Moses. And it's recorded in the beginning at verse number 23 in that paragraph there. And let's just read through that whole paragraph. It says, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wrong, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand and on the following day he appeared to them, and they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? 
But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside and said, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. And I think it's amazing. You know, I think, again, it's a good subject for us all to dwell on. And that happens to begin the love of God. You know, and, and if I was to ask anybody, is God a God of love? I think 99% of the people would say yes, whether they have a Christian affiliation or not. But the question is, again, how would God love us? How does God love us? And here's one of the ways God loves us. God loves us so much that when he sees us going in an erring way, he will bring consequences to bear on our life to bring us back in line with him. We many times call that the discipline of the Lord. And, and it does not mean that anytime anything goes wrong, there's, there happens to be major sin that happens to be in our life. But let me tell you this. A lot of time, it, times, it is the direct cause of disobedience, of sin, of our waywardness, of our staunchness, of walking uh, the way that we want. You know, and Hebrews makes this so clear. It says, and have, you, and have you forgotten the exhortation that was addressed to you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines who? The ones he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. And that's what God does. God in his love brings consequences to bear upon our sin because he loves us so much and he wants us to bring us back to him. But let me tell you, so often we can dig in our heels. Isn't it true? So often we can look at the things that happen to begin in our life. And let me tell you this, when we walk that way, we forfeit so much peace, so much joy, so much growth in our life, and so much uh, fruitfulness ex externally for the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we dig in our heels. And whether we happen to be a big believer or an unbeliever, the message is the same, isn't it? Today is the day of repentance. Today is the day to trust in him. The message is absolutely the same. You know, and, we, and I realize as we look at, and you, you realize as you can see this in this text, you know, as far as the Israelites. You know, here Moses, you know, it's beyond a shadow of a doubt. He must have grown up with that sense, you know, being, being brought up even by his mother and being, being grown up in, in that sense where he recognized the calling of God that happened to be in his life. And one day he visits his brothers and he sees this Egyptian manhandling this other man. And he intervenes. You know, and he supposes beyond a shadow of a doubt that everyone's going to understand what he is doing. He's the deliverer. He's the called one. He's the redeemer. He's the savior that happens to begin of Israel. And you can see this in Acts 7.25 because he says this. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand. And please don't get this wrong. They knew who Moses was. The stories would have been re, uh, rehearsed through all of Israel. It's not just that they did not have some cognitive ability to think through that. They just rejected this man as the great redeemer, as a great savior that happened to begin with the nation. And, and don't we have an experience like Moses? You know, here we are, and we have this wonderful opportunity to present the gospel to this, to this person, and we think they're going to understand. 
I mean, it's so easy to see your sin. It's so easy to see the necessity of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's so easy to see that he came, that he lived that perfect life, that he died that substitutionary death, that he rose from the grave. And we share these truths with other people. And we think, again, they're going to understand. But what do they do? What do they do? They reject the message. They scorn the message. Right? It's just like we were seeing three boys that happen to begin over here, and they're drowning, and the waters are getting rougher, and we throw it a life support, uh, support to them. And they scorn the life preserver. They ridicule it. They, they curse it. That's what people do to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what people do in these situations. You know, and he comes, and he tries to respond and intervene when he sees a dispute in between his fellow countrymen. And, and this is the response that, uh, that happens. It says, but the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And let me tell you, when it says, who are you as ruler and judge? You know, there's two things I want to point out about this. When, when, when he says, who are you to be judged, to be ruler over let me see who, who says it. God says it. You know, it's so apparent, isn't it? You know, they can see the days coming near. They recognize the glory. They recognize the providence of God in, in, in preserving this man's life. It is so apparent. Who made him? God made him. Ruler and judge. That happened to be over Israel. And here's the second thing I want to point out. Let me ask this question. Where are the Israelites right now? Where are they? Anyone know? They're in what? Egyptian bondage. And it's almost like, if I follow Moses, if I follow this guy, my situation's going to get worse. Who are you? And isn't it amazing? You look at people's lives many times, and here they are caught in sin. Here they are in the slave market of sin. Here they are in the dungeon of all of their passions. And freedom is found in Jesus Christ. Yes, there's an exchange in slavery, but his burden is so different, isn't it? You know, in fact, he even gives that invitation over in Matthew chapter 11, beginning of verse number 23, or 28, and he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and what do I do? I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Think of the yoke that happens to be on the Israelites at this time, and learn of me, for I am gentle and lowly, and you will find what? Rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And people. Don't want the yoke. Don't want the burden of Jesus. They want so-called freedom, and what they continue so often in is in the slavery again of sin. They're in the dungeon, and they don't realize the freedom, the glory, the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ, and this rest, this peace that could be theirs for their troubled souls, right? And there was a greater peace that was being offered, a greater freedom in Jesus Christ than any of the tyranny uh, that Rome had against Israel at this time. And yet, through all of that, they rejected him. Now think of that. Because I think we all know that story. But here's the thing that so often we forget. There are repercussions for rejecting Jesus Christ. Isn't there? There's repercussions many times. Now, let me just say this. Everything is mapped out by God. 
Everything, again, comes to pass as God's sovereign will. Moses is still full of pride. You know, he wants to trust again in his own power, his own ability, his own wisdom and everything, and bring to pass the plan of God. And he needs to go in the wilderness. He needs to learn humility, you know, how valuable is humility. But while he's in in the wilderness, he marries, and he has two children. And these two children are not the pure stock of Israel. But listen to verse number 30. It says, Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in the bush. Now, this is part of God's sovereign plan, isn't it? You know, God said, you know, 430 years my people are going to be in Egypt. And that 430 years has to come into pass. But let me say beyond a shadow of a doubt, that last 40 years did not need to happen. You know, if the people would have softened their heart, if they would have recognized God's Redeemer, God's salvation, they would not have to go through all of the burdens, all of the turmoil that they went through. You know, and I think it's a great lesson for us because the question we have to ask ourselves is, where is God calling me away from sin and back to him in my own life? You know, and it could be, again, the idea that he's calling me away from things that I'm looking at, these, these sites that happen to be, again, on the Internet. You know, I feel the call. I feel the tug. I feel the desire to go back on. And once I'm back on, once I look at these things, all of a sudden there's shame. All of a sudden I feel that bondage again. And what God is telling you, it's not a matter of what I know is right and wrong. What God is telling you is, come to me. My burden, what Jesus is telling you, my burden is so much more lighter, so much more glorious, and there's more rest that happens to be again found there. How about slothfulness? Please get this. I think there is an epidemic of slothfulness among believers in the Lord Jesus Christ today. Isn't it true? You know, we complain, our lives are so busy, our lives are so busy, our lives are so busy, and then we'll spend endless hours looking at a screen. Endless hours doing it. I have no time to read my Bible. I have no time to commune with God. I have no time to be with God's people. But endless hours, endless hours, endless hours. You know, and we wonder why there's such distance between us and this glorious God. Why my salvation, why security of my salvation is more real and God's not more real. Well, ask yourself, you know, how slothful are you spiritually? You know, how slothful, again, are you in, in your relationship to God? There's dividends to pay. This is what Christ is saying. Come to me. Come to me. My burden is so light. And let me tell you, beyond a shadow of a doubt, in all of these burdens that you have, you will find rest. You know, how about unforgiveness? You know, I don't know how, I've heard, how many times I've heard this statement. And sometimes I've even uttered this statement. And it's basically this, and it's a lie from the pit of hell. Here it is. I cannot forgive that person. Right? And we go on with Anger, we go, yeah, 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 I know what the word of God says, but I just, right, right? I don't want them. You know, and somehow we think we have, in unforgiveness, we think we have control of the situation. Isn't it true? We have this hatred, we have this burden, you know, and all of a sudden we'll be having a good time, we'll be out with friends, and that person's name will come up. That person will walk by, and all of a sudden we can feel all this hatred and all this animosity. And let me ask you, 
What are you really being controlled by? What are you really into slavery for, with? And here's what Christ promises. Christ promises great, glorious forgiveness that's found in him. He has paid your whole debt. And the more that you look on him and recognize how much of that debt's been paid, the more you're able to overcome unforgiveness and live in the freedom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And let me ask you this morning. Here it is. Where is God calling you away from? You think, no, 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 leave that. Come unto me. Where is he calling you um, away? You know, he's telling us not to wander in this wilderness of slavery. He's telling us beyond a shadow of a doubt that there will be repercussions if we continue. Now, that's one phase, again, of, of, um, of Moses' life. I want us to look at the second phase, and this happens to be Moses' calling. And we pick it up in verse number 30, and look at this paragraph here. It says, now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and he drew near to look. There came a voice, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the Lord. I, I'm sorry, I am God. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals from your feet, for this, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard the groanings, and have come down to deliver them. And now, come, I will send you to Egypt. Now, one of the things that we have to realize, and that we've just pointed out, is basically this. There are consequences to our disobedience. God has naturally brought it into there. You know, and one of the things that we revel in is the forgiveness of God. Is God a forgiving God? And the answer is a great amen. Yes, he is. Right? But please don't misunderstand this. Just because God forgives. And in fact, let me read a verse again of God's wonderful forgiveness first. In 1 John chapter 1, and verse number 9, it says, If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we love that verse, don't we? You know, God's a forgiving God, but please don't make the mistake. Just because he forgives us doesn't mean he will take any or all of the consequences away. Isn't it true? David, with his sin with Bathsheba, right? Here's God's king, God's anointed, and here he commits adultery with Bathsheba and then sends her husband Uriah to the front lines to be murdered. And there's a wonderful prayer. There's a couple of prayers that happen to begin in the Psalms that are taken over with David's contrition, David's repentance, and it's true and it's noble. But let me say beyond a shadow of a doubt, the God forgave him, but the consequences of his sin never left him. The sword never left his house. The baby that was conceived with Bathsheba died. And his kingship was never the same again. And let me say beyond a shadow of a doubt, when we tinker with sin, when we think that we can get away from sin, sin let me say beyond a shadow of a doubt, some of the consequences that go are long-lasting. Marriage infidelity is a huge sin that has huge consequences, doesn't it? 
You know, when all of a sudden that breach, sometimes the marriage is completely destroyed. You know, there's no going back. It, here it is. There's a point of no return, and the person goes off of here, and they go off that point, and all of a sudden there's no coming back. You know, and that marriage is destroyed. Often that marriage is restored, but that intimacy, that trust, where it was before, is never, it never seems that that couple gets up to that point of trust and intimacy, of joined togetherness ever again. And we love to blame other people. We love to blame our spouse. We love to blame, again, this person. We love to blame God, even in his providence, for bringing all these circumstances to bear. But we realize we have one person to blame, and it is ourselves. And here's the thing to realize. God is not to be trifled with. Sin is not to be trifled with as something light in our life. You know, and there's two things that I want us to point out about this paragraph. And, and one of them, again, would have really infuriated the Jews. And that is because, remember, they're thinking about these two points. They're thinking about these two points, the temple, the law, the temple, the law. Here's this holy place. Here's this place where we meet God. And here's the question. Where did God meet Moses? And he met Moses where? In the wilderness. Right? Even says this, take off your shoes. Why? This is holy ground. Because where is God? God is there. And there's a truth so, so wonderfully that, that every place that we go is sanctified because God is present there, isn't it? And the Jews should have known that. Now, let me say beyond the shadow of that, the only place uh, prescribed to worship was the temple for the Jews. And the reason why is because they were a theocracy. They were, again, a nation under God, ruled by God. And this was to bring them together in their religion so they wouldn't have all these offshoots of various different religions. They would worship the one true God. And it was to solidify, bring unity to the nation. But they should have known beyond a shadow of a doubt that God would one day reach out to the Gentile nations, to the non-Jewish people, and bless them through the promise again of Abraham. You know, they should have recognized it. You know, Jesus even taught this to the Samaritan woman at the well. You know, she asked, where should we worship? And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will, uh, will you worship the Father. And here's the amazing thing. You can almost imagine this. Because Jesus has given his great commission, hasn't he? He's given it a number of times. You can imagine all the days that he happened to begin there, preaching before his ascension, that happened to begin in heaven. He went over the great commission, ran over the great commission. You shall be witnesses where? In, in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world. And they must have rehearsed it. Even though they haven't gone out, they're going to go out at the end of this chapter in an incredible providential way. But even though they haven't gone out, they must have re 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 rehearsed this. This blessing's not just for us, it's for everyone. And you can imagine how that angered the Jews, but they must have recognized that. They must have recognized from their Old Testament scriptures that God is a God, not just of them, but of every people. And it really brings out, as we ask the question, and here's the question, where's the temple of God today? Where's the temple of God today? And let me, yeah, yeah, it's not on the Temple Mount. You know, the Temple of God is used in two ways to signify the Temple of God, God's presence today. And one is corporately as the people of God gather together. And please get this, it's not talking about location. 
It's not talking about this building is holy because we meet together. We can meet out in the parking lot, and guess what? We're the temple of God out in the parking lot. We can meet, meet in the back field, and guess what? We are the temple of God because it's talking about the meeting, the congregating of God's people. And it also, the language that's also used in Scripture is us personally. We are the temple of God individually. So the way that God is seen and known in the world today is through his people. And let me tell you, this would have infuriated the religious leaders. You know, they had a lock on worship to God, on, on, on approach to God, because they had the temple. And this would have infuriated them, rather than seeing, again, this great grace of God. The other thing that I want us to see is a cry of God's people right at the end of this paragraph. And it's in verse number 34. And listen to what it says. This is, God, this is what God says to Moses. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have had heard their groanings, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. And that's so wonderful, isn't it? I love, these, I love these portions of Scripture because it tells us this. As the people of God, as the true people of God, when we pray to this great God, he does hear us. He does respond. You know, our groanings, our cryings, our afflictions, he does. And he does respond it, to it. But here's the thing to remember. Forty years before they get to this point, where they cry out for the deliverer that God would send. And here's my whole point. It didn't have to be like this. They didn't have to have these consequences. You know, they didn't have to have all these deaths over that 40 years, all of those burdens, all of that hardship over those 40 years if they, didn't re if they would have repented earlier. And let me tell you, and here's the whole message. Stephen's trying to bear it down. Stephen's trying to bear it down. You're making the same error. You're going in the same obstinate direction as those who happen to be before you. And they would. Again, this is all through the providence of God. God is controlling all of these events, right? But if they would have repented, if the Sanhedrin would have repented, if the people of Israel would have repented, things would have been different. But what's going to happen? The Romans are going to come against them. They're going to destroy the temple. They're going to destroy again where they are. And they're going to suffer for the next two millennia where we are today. You know, and God will take up his program with the Gentile nations, which we find again that happens to be again in the word of God. But here's the thing. It didn't have to be that way. And here's the thing you have to realize about your life. It doesn't have to be this way in your life. But let me warn you. If you're going to go in that direction, God is not a God to be trifled with. God has gotten... A God who doesn't let us dabble in sin as if we can control it. And we're so, we walk so much in our own wisdom, don't we? Well, tomorrow I will repent. Or maybe next week I will repent. I'll get my heart right as if we can control it. Let me tell you, 40 years, the one who controls repentance is God. And if you're unwilling to repent today, I can guarantee you beyond a shadow of a doubt, you're only hardening your heart. You know, today is a day of repentance. Today is the day to trust him. And there's one more season of, of uh, Moses' life that I want us to look at. And I want us to again look at this second rejection. You know, because you have the same response again in verse number 35, because look at what it says right here. 
Says this Moses whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent both as ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in a bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at Red Sea and in the, in the, in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from the brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with the fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Now what happens? Listen to what happens. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Oh. Verse number 41, and they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hand. Now think of it, because history has a way of repeating itself, doesn't it? I, I, I mean, we mentioned that. History has a way of repeating itself. You know, we think we can control the situation, we think of this. Think of the time when Jesus is coming on the scene. Think of what Israel was like. In Israel, there was a great aura of expectation. God was about to move. In some way, we don't know how, but he is going to send this great Christ, this great deliverer, this great anointed one. And there was that sense of expectation. And you can imagine even how the excitement even ramped up when all of a sudden this man in the wilderness you know, is repeating this, is, is uh, preaching this message of repentance. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And they have this sense of awe. 400 silent years. Now think of the time again of Moses. Because you have 430 years, and you can imagine, because they knew the prophecy of, of, um, uh, of Abraham. It would have been passed down, would have passed down. We came, well, what was the year that we came uh, to Egypt? Okay, okay, let's count it. 428, 429. It's time. It's time. But here's the thing. It's not so much the expectation. But here's the thing. It's what kind of redeemer, what kind of deliverer, what kind of king do you want? And this is the problem. So often, people do not want the redeemer that God sends. They want a reliever. Right? Somebody will relieve us of all of our burdens, of all of our trials, of all of our difficulties, of all of our struggles that happen at the beginning of life. You know, may the money fall, may health fall, may everything else fall in my life. What I want is a reliever. I want him to get rid of all these bad, all of these negative relationships that happen to begin in my life. This is what I want. Otherwise, I want a redeemer after my own fashioning. That's what I want from God. And we're only going to get as far as verse number 35. So if you're wondering again if we're going to go to 11, we're not going to go to 11. But look at verse number 35. It says, This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. Do you see a parallel there? You know, who is the redeemer? 
Who is the one that God sent? Right? Who is the one who was even announced by an angel? Remember the angel comes to, comes to Mary? You know, in Luke chapter 1 and verse number 32, it says, and it says this of Jesus, this coming ruler, this coming king, he will be great and be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom, there will be no end. Who's coming? King Jesus. Who's coming? The great Redeemer. Who's coming? The great Deliverer, the great Savior is coming. And he'll be a king like none other. Think about what this king will do. He will come and deliver all who trust in him from the greatest tyranny, from the greatest threat that we ever have. And that happens to be, again, sin and its peril and its punishment and its power over our life. And Jesus even said in Mark 10, 45, there's never been a king like this. For even the Son of Man didn't, came not to be served, but to serve, and here it is, and to give his life as a ransom for many. In other words, he is the Redeemer. So, wrapping this all up, think of the person of Moses. And what is being emphasized when you hear all of these things about Moses and his ministry? What's the thing that's being emphasized? And the thing that's being emphasized is twofold. One is, this is God's man. This is God's redeemer. And the other thing that's being emphasized, you can see this over and over through the sermon, is the rejection of Moses. Right? God's redeemer. Here's Jesus Christ. And who is Jesus Christ? He is God's redeemer. God's deliverer. Now here's the question. Well, what are we going to do with him? You know, so often we can walk in our own wisdom and think we can control everything. God is not a God to be trifled with. He has made a way of escape. And the message all the way through this is very simple. Come to him. Turn from your wicked ways. And come to him. Don't miss the pure grace of God he's giving you today. Come to him. Let's bow our hearts in a moment of prayer. Father, it's amazing to look at this passage. To look at this sermon. Lord, it might not even be a way that we would craft a sermon. But Stephen knew his audience. He knew the problem. He knew the hard-heartedness. He knew, Lord, the truth of the message of the Old Testament, that grace is necessary. And, Lord, he also knew this truth. Grace is given. Grace is offered through Jesus Christ. But before any can come, they must see the problem. They must see their stiff-neckedness. They must see, Lord, their iniquity. They must repent and trust in Christ. I just pray, Lord, if there's any unsaved in our midst today, Lord, that you would open up their hearts, that they would see their sin and their need of a Savior. Lord, I pray that if there's any that are dabbling in sin, Lord, who have taken a contrary attitude and say, you know, I'm not going to repent of this, I'm not going to repent of this, that they would heed the warning that happens to be in this passage. Today is the day of repentance. Today is the day to come. We thank you so much. Just be with us now, Lord, as we're dismissed. We ask these things in Christ's name.
Amen.